Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. We're back with another conversation about the Reformation with Dr. Carlos Ayer, who not only teaches this time period at Yale University, but wrote a thick book called Reformations, which seeks to tell the whole story of all the changes, religious, social, and political, that started before the 1500s. We began this chat on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile 245, where we just touched on another figure from that time period who was kind of the Martin Luther of Switzerland. When we last left our conversation, uh, you had mentioned in passing uh, Zwingli. At least in words, he comes off in print as the nicer guy than Luther. But... As you pointed out, in action, he would use violence to, you know, quote-unquote, reform. Can you tell us more about his story and also why did he think that violence was necessary? Well, Zwingli is um, very different from Luther in many ways. Uh, Zwingli was an ordained priest. So was Luther. But Luther had a crisis, as we we talked about uh, last time. Luther had a spiritual and um, psychological crisis. Zwingli didn't have any of this. He was more of a scholar than Luther, even though, you know, he was a a priest and served as a priest. He had uh, purchased and read everything that the great scholar and humanist Erasmus had ever published. He was very deeply influenced by Erasmus. Luther was not. But Erasmus was a great critic of medieval piety and in the way in which medieval Christians approached religion. And it was Erasmus who actually made this um, spirit and matter almost antithetical to each other. And he wanted, uh, Erasmus wanted a kind of Christianity that was purely spiritual and didn't focus on, on material points of contact. Now, would that be considered Platonism, like the Augustinian version? Yes, this is uh, a, a, I I always call it, uh, you know, how some some, uh, frozen foods are are sold with, uh, they're called deep dish whatever. Well, this is double deep dish Platonism, Uh uh, kind of inverted because, you know, in in Platonism, matter, of course, is inferior to the real thing, spiritual, but it connects you to it. But Erasmus... um, had had this weird take on on the spirit matter connection, which Zwingli turned into something even fiercer uh, of an antagonism between matter and spirit. When it came to worship and ritual and symbols, that's where Zwingli applied it. And this is why Zwingli was the, he was not the first Protestant reformer to oppose images. That was uh, Andrew Karlstadt, as we spoke about last time. But Zwingli was the first who succeeded in getting an entire city, Zurich, to get rid of its images and to get rid of the Catholic mass, too, to get rid of the Catholic Eucharist. Because as Zwingli saw it, Jesus Christ cannot be in the bread and wine. He simply cannot be because it's the way Zwingli saw it. Jesus was fully human. He had a human body and he went up to heaven. And he's in heaven. So he can't be in more than one place at one time because he's human. So with this kind of radical plan, you know, that was one one part of his radical plan. Yeah. In 1525, Zurich gets rid of all of its images, gets rid of the Catholic mass. And then the city itself then has to become a Christian commonwealth because that was the other part of his plan was to actually purify the church To purify the church means also to purify society. So you try to turn every citizen into a good Christian. And 
Of course, he wasn't alone. Zwingli, there were other Swiss who were picking up Protestant ideas, right? And one by one, many uh, of the northern Swiss cities, cities that are on the north side of the Alps, right? That's the most heavily populated uh, section of Switzerland. One by one, the cities near Zurich become Protestant the same way. And they destroy the images and they establish, they try to establish what, in, when I was in college, my textbooks said, tried to establish a theocracy. But that's come under attack. Now, it's not a theocracy, really. But the clergy uh, actually have a, a very heavy hand in monitoring the behavior of people with the state, arm in arm with the state. So Zwingli was not a violent man, actually. You know, when, when, when they got rid of the images, he never touched an image. He never destroyed one. He just told other people they had to do it. Uh, and he had never fought in a war. As a matter of fact, before, you know, when he was still a very young priest, he served as chaplain to a Swiss army. Uh, you know, every city and every canton in Switzerland had its, you know, its own army. And they hired themselves out. Uh, the idea of Swiss mercenaries still around. The Pope has them. Right. <laughs> the Pope has Swiss mercenaries guarding him. As a matter of fact, I just read this past week that the highest percentage uh, of nationalities living in Vatican City are the Swiss. <laughs> wow. Because it's so small. I just read uh, something about the French Revolution, and they mentioned once the Swiss guards were taken out, then, I'm like, wow, they were there even then. Wow. Right. So anyway, to get back to where, where my narrative was going is that he served as a chaplain, and he saw how horrible was, how horrible war could be. He was devastated, and he actually wrote a piece encouraging the Swiss not to hire themselves out as soldiers anymore. So he very reluctantly went to war with the Catholic cantons and cities that were pushing back on him and his missionaries, right? Uh, these Catholic uh, cities and, and uh, rural areas, they did not want to go the same way as Zurich, and they were resisting it. And the, there were skirmishes, and the skirmishes kept getting uh, more and more uh, intense and so on. And finally, the, they went to war, the Protestant cantons against the Catholic cantons. Uh, and in 1531, uh, he put on armor, took up a sword, and went off to battle uh, and died in the battlefield. So he wasn't actually killed trying to enforce his ideas mm -hmm. as much as they were like defending his country or defending his ideas? Yeah, well, in a, in a way, he was fighting for the right to send missionaries and change the rest of Switzerland, perhaps, the rest of the world. And in print, that's exactly what he did, because as I often tell my students, everyone uh, in the United States uh, used to, I don't know if this happens anymore, right? But anyone who graduated from high school had heard of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. But Ulrich Zwingli is much, much more important to the development of the United States than Luther, because it's Zwingli and his, as it became known, reformed theology, reformed Protestantism, had a much stronger and deeper impact on England than Lutheranism. So the English Puritans, they are Zwingli's spiritual grandchildren. And um, even Anglicanism, in England. So, you know, if you look at the difference between, let's say, Virginia and Massachusetts or, or Connecticut, you know, Anglicans down in Virginia, uh, Puritans up here in New England, uh, even those Anglicans in Virginia were affected by Zwingli because the Anglican church adopted many of the tenets of, of Zwingli's Reformation, uh, especially when it came to ritual and worship, which is why you end up having uh, England go uh, into civil war in the 1640s. It's the Puritans want to get rid of all of what they call traces of popery. Right. Or what in, in our own day and age, I've heard said this way many, many, many times. They wanted to get rid of smells and bells. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. No incense, yeah. no candles, <laughs> no bells, you know. Uh, the priest doesn't have to wear these fancy um, 
dresses, vestments, and so on. So yeah. there was a vestment controversy in the Anglican Church that tore the church apart. You know, how how should the clergy dress? And all these, I'll, I'll call them Zwinglians, right? Mm-hmm. They reform. All these Zwinglians, they 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 just want it as plain as simple as possible. And actually, the essence of Puritanism is Zwinglianism. Uh, of course, there's there are differences, and actually, there are so many different kinds of Puritans. I have never actually mastered the full range of the Puritan rainbow, right? To be able to tell you what kind of Puritan somebody is. Mm -hmm. But it's a very, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, It's it's a very aggressive sort of Protestantism in that when when you set up shop somewhere, you want everybody else to come along with you. And then his, the way that Zwingli gets to England is through much younger reformer, John Calvin came along later. Uh, Zwingli was born in 1484. Calvin was born in 1509. But Calvin, also raised Catholic, became a Zwinglian. And uh, it is through Calvin who managed to actually turn one Swiss city, which actually was an independent republic at the time, Geneva. was not part of Switzerland until later. But anyway, he turned Geneva into the Protestant Rome. And that's what people uh, started calling Geneva, sort of, you know, uh, the Catholics angrily <laughs> calling Geneva the Protestant Rome. And from Geneva, Calvin and his followers uh, sent missionaries to many different places. And actually, the way that Zwinglianism got to England was through Geneva, because when Henry VIII died and his son Edward uh, became king, that's when Zwingli's followers really started to change things in, in the Anglican church. But Edward didn't live very long. And then his half-sister Mary became queen and she reverted England back to Catholicism. And in that time, many English went into exile. Many English Protestants went into exile and many of them ended up in Geneva. And that's where they picked up Zwinglianism through Calvin, Reformed Protestantism through Calvin. So we actually, you know, I, I could amend my first statement. You know, I say Zwingli is more important than Luther for the United States. Well, you can also say, you know, it's, it's Zwingli through Calvin. Calvin is much more important. But high school students, my generation, might have heard of Calvin, but not Zwingli. Uh, no, 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 but nobody hears of Zwingli anymore, I'm sure, in high school. But it is that combination of Zwingli through Calvin and the way Calvin reinterprets reformed theology. That's what had the greatest impact on on the U.S. My biggest disappointment after reading your book is that, having been raised a Protestant, there's a chance I could have been actually called a sausage eater. Yes. <laughs> I, I really like sausage. Talk about that particular little story. Well, see, this is, this is the way that Zwingli changed Zurich. Because keep in mind, he shares this with Luther. The church needs to be reformed according to the Bible. And if, you don't, if the church is doing something you don't find in the Bible— it, sh- it shouldn't exist. So the medieval Catholic Church insisted that people had to fast and abstain from meat periodically. Every Friday, no one was supposed to eat meat, except for fish. Fish was okay. And actually, that, that distinction is, is very, very uh, interesting. Why fish? Why, can you eat, why is it you can eat, eat fish meat, but not the meat of mammals or birds or uh, poultry. This goes way back, way back before Christianity. It's the ancient uh, idea found in some Mediterranean religions that whatever you eat becomes part of you. So in those days and throughout the Middle Ages, it was just assumed that fish were different because people believed fish did not reproduce through sexual intercourse. So one reason for abstaining from meat was to prevent all this lust, picking up all this lust from the meat that you eat. <laughs> I know uh, some also, vegetarians that are still pretty lustful. 
Oh yeah. Well, that you know, it's been proven. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't make much difference. <laughs> but that's what people believed. And then during Lent in um, late winter, or early spring, forty days of fasting, you couldn't have meat on Wednesdays or Fridays. You couldn't have dairy products either on Wednesdays or Fridays. No butter, for instance, on Wednesdays and, and Fridays. So Ash Wednesday is when Lent begins. And Swingley had been telling people in Zurich from the pulpit preaching as a Catholic priest that all of this was nonsense, absolute nonsense. It's nowhere in the New Testament. It's not in the Gospels. It's not in the Acts of the Apostles. It's not in any of Paul's letters or any of the other epistles. And so why are we doing this? We have to stop. So this is another uh, interesting pattern that I found in Zwingli is that he had the greatest impact on people who were younger than him, right? He was, he was preaching in his 30s. And it is the 20-somethings in his congregation who really take him very seriously. So a group of mostly 20-somethings on Ash Wednesday on one edge Wednesday, organize a sausage eating dinner in defiance of Lent and Ash Wednesday fasting regulations. And Zwingli is sitting there in the room with all the sausage eaters, but he will not consume the sausages. But of course he, he is so happy. I can just imagine how happy he was just sitting there and watching these 20 somethings chewing away on sausages they they're getting it you know they're getting it so there's a generational thing and actually many of those sausage eaters will then disagree with swingley and go even further they'll become the the anabaptists mm. right because it's in it's in zurich that the most of the the, the the leaders of the early anabaptist movement came from zurich they would say, for instance, Anabaptists say, well, I don't see any children being baptized in the, in, the, in the New Testament. What is this? Why are we baptizing infants? No, no, you know, and so on. Their theology developed that way, and they broke with Zwingli, and actually they end up being persecuted. And uh, the, the first Anabaptist to die in Zurich had been a follower of Zwingli. And how did they die? Like, by whose hands? The state. This is a law that was on the books from Roman times that rebaptizing someone was a capital offense. This goes way back to another early Christian heresy that Augustine had to contend with, the Donatists. Don't need to explain it. There was a law in Roman law, law code. If you rebaptize someone, they have to be killed. Man. And they institute that in Zurich. So actually, uh, with a, I think this is kind of dark humor on the part of the Zurich clergy and civil authorities. Felix Mance, the first Anabaptist to be executed, was drowned. Uh, you want water? We'll give you water. <laughs> wow. So they, they, they tie him up with weights and throw him into the, the river. Did Zwingli ever comment on the Anabaptists being persecuted? Oh, yeah, he was all in favor of it. Oh, my goodness. Yes, these people are wrong. So, you know, if you wanted to remain a Catholic in Zurich, you had to leave, right? Or you just had to become Protestant. The Catholic Church was outlawed, kicked out, dismantled completely. But that's the pattern you follow for the Reformation in most places. How did places become Protestant? Well, they usually became Protestant this way. But in, in France, for instance, where Calvin sent many missionaries, the Reformed Protestants came to be known as Huguenots, were a powerful minority. And they did manage to take over certain cities, but they couldn't take over all of France. And this is why a civil war, actually a series of civil wars known as the Wars of Religion, broke out in France. And it lasted three decades from the 1560s to the end of the 1590s, French are killing each other. And the whole thing, it, I mean, how do you get to warfare like Zwingli? How do you get to warfare? Well, it all has to do with, can we keep expanding, right? Can we keep expanding this reformed church? 
Uh, and of course, the Catholics pushed back. And that's how you end up with the wars of religion in France, which were just absolutely horrific in terms of the brutality. At one point, you describe a debate that took place between Zwingli and Luther. And I remember while I was reading it, my heart kind of went out to Zwingli because he seemed, I think the way you put it, he admired Luther greatly, but Luther just destroys him. It's so mean to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about that yes. incident and like how was Zwingli affected after meeting his hero and just being abused? Yeah, well, Zwingli had met Erasmus, by the way, earlier in life, and he he was not disappointed by his meeting with, with Erasmus, although they actually ended up becoming very different. Erasmus didn't want to, the church to break up over theology or ritual or symbols. He wanted Erasmus very much in favor of peace, harmony. Zwingli went a different way, but he never said anything nasty about Erasmus. But boy, he he had already uh, felt the brunt of Luther's verbal abuse before meeting with him at the Marburg Colloquy in 1529. He knew what he was facing, right? Because Luther had nothing good to say. And as a matter of fact, he had very creative ways of, of saying bad things about anyone who disagreed with him, including Zwingli. So in 1529, because it looks like, in 1529, it looks like the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V is finally going to be able to get his act together and gather a huge army to crush all Protestants. Again, we're back to war. There's one Lutheran prince, Philip of Hesse, in Germany, who decides, you know, we we could really take on Charles and defend ourselves if we can join forces with the Swiss, because the Swiss were the best soldiers. They were like the Navy SEALs of the 16th century, if I could put it that way. Um, so Philip wants to get the Swiss and the Germans together to form a military alliance. So all the great theologians, Lutheran and Reformed, meet in one room to discuss theology and to take up the possibility of making a single church. Imagine how that would have been, right? Mm. And how different that would have been. They agreed on 13 points. There was one point on which they could not agree, and that was the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Is Jesus really in the bread and wine or not? And Zwingli, as I said before, puts up his argument, oh, look, Jesus can't be in two places at the same time. And Luther, his argument was, but Jesus is fully human, yeah, but he's also God, and God can be everywhere at the same time. <laughs> and they go back and forth, back and forth, and Luther keeps uh, saying to, to Zwingli, Zwingli, you're being too mathematical. Stop being so mathematical. And finally, uh, he, at one point, Luther gets uh, really irritated, and he writes on the table the Latin words that the priest says, when celebrating the Eucharist. Hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And he keeps pointing to that, to Zwingli, and say, tell me that is doesn't mean is. Est. You're crazy, Zwingli. Jesus says, this is my body. And Zwingli answers back and says, yeah, Joe, Jesus also said, I am the vine. <laughs> you are the branches. Luther, you're so stupid. No, he didn't say it that way. Luther you're ignoring metaphor here. But Luther gets really nasty, you know. And at one point, there are two points at that discussion where, where Luther's anger comes through very strongly. One is where uh, he says to Zwingli, look, Jesus said, you've got to do this. And I am in there, in the bread and the wine. So because God tells me to do it, I have to do it and I have to believe it. And then Luther, who could be very crude, said, look, if God ordered me to eat shit, I would. <laughs> We'd all have to eat it. We'd all have to eat shit as a sacrament. But he did. You know, he picked the bread and the wine. <laughs> and then at another point, um, he says to Zwingli, he, that, that passage in several places in the New Testament, this is my body. He says, this is the passage that will break your necks. And Zwingli gets really hot under the collar too. 
uh, and he says, yeah, well, don't, uh, don't forget, we're not up there with you, Luther. You can't come and break our necks. But at the end of this meeting, Zwingli was crying. He was weeping. And he, he asked for reconciliation with Luther, and Luther rebuffed him. He said, you and I, were of different spirits. Basically meaning, meaning behind that is, you're with the devil. So they never had um, much of an exchange after that. I can imagine. As a matter of fact, later, Luther's still alive. The much younger Reformed leader, John Calvin, writes a letter to Luther, asking him a specific question and praising him. And so I've learned so much from you. I admire you so much. You're such a great man. Uh, could you please answer this question for me? And I'll get to that question in a minute. But then he receives a reply from Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, is the one who answers Calvin's letter. And he says, I'm sorry, I couldn't show your letter to Luther because anything that comes from down there irritates him too much. I just could not show it to him. And the question Calvin was asking Luther was, is it okay for any reformed Christian for any evangelical, as they started to call themselves. So they didn't call themselves Protestants. They called themselves evangelicals because they followed the gospel. Is it okay for any evangelical to attend Catholic religious services? Calvin's answer to that, of course, was no. And he wanted to know if Luther agreed with him. And Melanchthon uh, writes a very uh, kind of uh, wishy-washy letter. There's no agreement on that, on the, but on the Calvinist side, the reform side, that became one of their main tenets, which was you cannot set foot in a Catholic church. You simply cannot. And you cannot fake being a Catholic. You either become an evangelical or not. There is no compromise. Luther would have probably agreed. But again, Melanchthon, because he was writing for Luther, and Melanchthon was more of a peacekeeper than Luther, a much nicer man in terms of his relations with other people. He says, yeah, I think, you know, I think maybe, uh, Luther might agree with you, but I can't show him your letter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he'll get too angry. He'll, have, he'll blow up if I show, your letter, show him your letter. Uh, it's a very, very sad and funny kind of response that Melanchthon gives him. I actually decided to specialize in Reformation my first year of graduate school because it was the first time I picked up a text written by Luther. And I thought this was the funniest thing I had ever read because he was so free with his insults towards everybody. I said, this guy never holds back. He just does not hold back. What's going on? I've never seen anything like it before. And, well, I, I got pulled in. When I was in college and I first read Luther also, I think when you're at that age, you think you know it all and you're a bit of a zealot and you just yeah. want to tell everybody off. And Luther was like the guy, you know, he, right. he, yes. he, he can help you with yeah, your words. <laughs> yes, he was. And of course, you know, I, me, I was, I was in college in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, all young people were ticked off, yeah. right? If you were young, you were just, you know, against everything and everybody. Yeah. So he, he seemed like really cool to me. And it's funny, this is kind of a side, but you probably know in the story of Elijah versus King Ahab, and there's that big duel between the prophets of Baal and and, uh, the Yahwehist, and Elijah's taunting the Baalist. Mm -hmm. And at one point, because the the fire's not coming down, Right. He's like, "Where's your, where's Bell at? Maybe he's uh, asleep. Maybe he's 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 taking a dump." You know, he actually says yep. some alliteration yeah. in that. So I thought, oh, that's a little bit of a Lutherism, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that happened to Luther when he came upon his realization that you're saved by faith rather than works was that God was not going to send you to hell for small little sins like using foul language. Mm-hmm. So he just let go. <laughs> he just let go and used foul language repeatedly. The Catholic Catholics, oh boy, did Catholics seize on this. You know, talk about that, that, that conflict between the priests of Baal and, and, and the Israelites. Catholics w- would say, Catholic uh, polemicists 
who were trying to convince people not to listen to Luther. He said, look at this man. You want to follow this man? Do you think this man is a good Christian? Look at the way he behaves. Look at the things he says. How could you ever, you know, follow anybody who is just so nasty? So Catholics uh, used that against him. It, it didn't. It didn't seem to work very well, though. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. people followed him anyway. Yeah, right. I want to zoom out now. I, I still have specific questions about Zwingli and all that, but I want to get in some questions about kind of how to look at this whole thing from a historical perspective. Okay, so in the history of individual citizens attaining more autonomy over their own lives, one milestone towards that end is that's often cited by political historians is when the Catholic Church became so powerful that it served as a bulwark against the absolute power of kings and governments in Europe, okay? And then another marker becomes when the Protestant Reformation rolled back the great power of the Catholic Church that it had amassed for itself. Some people kind of say, well, then the Catholic Church became the problem. And I think at least one bit of evidence for this argument, maybe, and you can take me on if you disagree, is the appearance of the 12 Articles, uh, which seems like one of the first major steps towards legal recognition of civil rights of ordinary people. Uh, it also calls for some aspects of the church to become democratized. I'll stop there and just comment on that first. Well, uh, the 12 articles are Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists were always a minority, and the Anabaptists were always persecuted in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Anabaptists actually were extremists in this regard, that they didn't think infants should be baptized. The outcome of that, what happens if you don't baptize children? What if you just simply have to wait until somebody becomes a good Christian to baptize them? That means that society as a whole can never be entirely Christian. And some people are Christians and some are not. So there's that kind of individualism, right? And anabaptism that completely undoes and completely threatens the notion that everyone should be Christian. The idea that Protestantism as a whole, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, created more individualism, yes, there are ways in which they did. Like, for instance, if the clergy are not behaving correctly, you simply get rid of them. You vote right? them out. Just you get mean, rid of them. Yeah. You just toss them out. Right. Yeah. Whereas before, that you were stuck with them. Absolutely. And also, the, you know, among... Um, the Reformed Protestants. The congregation has the right to choose its own clergy. That's that's a big step. Before, everything was hierarchical, right? Pope, bishops, priests. And and it was the bishops who decided who was going to be a priest here and there and so on. Now the congregations have more power. However, becoming truly Reformed, as happened in Geneva and Zurich and other places where they took over, did not necessarily mean you had more freedom because everyone, in contradiction of the Anabaptists, for instance, who said the true church has to be separate from society. The Reformed Protestants insisted everyone has to be Christian and everyone has to actually try to be a good Christian. I'll give you an example of how what we would consider a, a, a great imposition on individual rights in Geneva. They had a list of names you could give your children. And if you picked a, a name for your child that was not on the list, they wouldn't use that name. So there were the, you couldn't use uh, any names that were linked to the cult of the saints. So at any, and if you gave your child a name of some saint that was very popular, the, the minister, the clergyman at the baptismal font would say to the parents, no, you can't name your your child Claude was one of the names because Claude was a very popular saint in Geneva. You can't name him Claude. Or here's another name that was on the forbidden list. You couldn't call anyone Christian. You couldn't give that as a baptismal name because it was stupid because everyone is Christian. <laughs> right. 
So there were actually fights, physical fights at the baptismal font between the clergy and the parents <laughs> over what the children, what names the children could could have. Uh, and uh, there were all sorts of laws that, you know, here in the United States, uh, I'm old enough to remember here in New England, the, the Puritan heritage, uh, Connecticut had blue laws. They were called blue laws, right? Uh, liquor stores couldn't be open on Sunday. Most stores had to be closed on Sunday. No, uh, no liquor uh, either on uh, election day or any other important days uh, and so on and so forth. Those are the heritage of Puritanism, which imposed a code of behavior on everyone that we would find onerous. Right. Right. However, there is a truly revolutionary spirit in Reformed Protestantism that is linked to democracy. Not what we would consider necessarily individual freedom, but but democracy, the, the, the fact that earthly rulers, government, can be overthrown if it's being tyrannical. And it's the Scottish reformer John Knox who developed the most aggressive sort of ideology and theology about this. You know, Knox was very upset, and Knox had spent time in Geneva. Knox was very upset that Scotland still had a Catholic queen and that, you know, she was still uh, having priests in her palace saying mass. He wanted to get rid of this. Anyway, he wrote a series of treatises in which he argued that it is the duty of Christians, and it doesn't matter if you have a political title or not. All Christians, regardless of their status in society, have a duty to overthrow tyrants. Mm -hmm. That is as, you know, as, as central principle as you can get to the development of the kind of thinking that led to the American Revolution, right? Sort of a classless, completely classless, uh, all this Marxist crap about, you know, uh, elites and subalterns and all this. No, no, no. Knox says very clearly, in many ways, he's echoing Calvin, but taking him in a more radical direction. What he's saying is, and, and he's echoing Paul too, right? There is no Jew or Christian or anything else. We're all Christians, right? Well, we're all Christians, and all Christians have equal responsibility, which means they have equal power. So um, that, I think, in my mind, is the, the greatest political contribution made by Protestantism. And, and that comes through the Reformed tradition more than through the Lutheran tradition. Because the Lutheran church depended on princes very much. Um, there was more of a uh, sort of communal individualism as well as personal individualism in Reformed Protestantism, but there were ways in which it was curbed and curbed in ways that, you know, we Americans would find very offensive. What do you mean I can't name my child Claude? <laughs> Although, uh, you know, a few years ago, I don't know if you saw this news story, um, a couple in New Jersey had their, their son taken away from them by the state because they had named him Adolf Hitler. Wow. <laughs> so at, in a court of law, it was decided this was child abuse. <laughs> and they took the kid away from his parents. Well, not Knox was a bit like Luther. He, he never held back. He used to go in and call Queen Anne, uh, Queen Mary a papistical whore. <laughs> he made her cry repeatedly, harangued the queen, you know, for being a papist and an idolater. Uh -huh. So uh, this gets passed on, and it's it's very uh, very much part of uh, American culture. Although now, of course, you know, we have I think we have new a new breed of Puritan among us but it's not a it's not a calvinist puritan it's all the woke people well um, it's funny you should bring that up i had a listener of the podcast a fellow by the name of nicholas whitman and he sent in a question for you uh, he's read reformations 
He asked, what similarities have you observed between certain upheavals of the Reformation era and the iconoclasm of social justice movements today? He says, I view neo-Marxism as a regression, a return to a more juvenile stage of social development. And he says, I was particularly captured by the account of the Munster Rebellion. I believe that Marxism is actually a new permutation of linear history apocalypticism. Apocalypticism, yes. There, thank you, thank you. All the way down to entailing the same rituals and requirement for public display of piety. It's a really good affirmation of the Jungian theory of collective possession. People separated by centuries can be possessed by the exact same unintegrated aspects of the unconscious. Wow. You know, I had never I'd never uh, uh, encountered this uh, theory, if it is a theory from Jung. But that's beautiful. Uh-huh. I agree 100%. I agree completely. You know, things, uh, you know, we, we have the phrase reinventing the wheel, yeah. right? <laughs> which refers to this phenomenon and yes um you know we're we're having a meeting here in my town if i didn't have a cast on my leg and have the great difficulty i have getting from point a to point b i would go to this meeting today in my town again very democratic Uh at the town hall we're having a discussion on critical race theory and should it be taught to the children of guilford connecticut this whole critical race theory which is you know marxist and all the wokeism is uh, exactly a recreation of what happened in Munster. The, the points might be different, right? But the intent is the same, which is there's only one way to think. There's only one way to behave. And if you don't agree with this, off with your head or off with your tongue, right? right. Well, cut off your tongue so you can't speak and infect other people with your evil thoughts, right? That's, that's what we're up against. And in that respect, uh, what was it I was reading this this morning? Brandeis University has made certain words um, unlawful on campus. And and one of them was rule of thumb. Why? Who knows? You can't say rule of thumb anymore. To not Uh, offend people who don't have thumbs? Maybe. I don't know. I didn't. I was I was just reading the the first paragraph of the article. I didn't get to read the whole thing. But um, Yes, there are things that you can't say, you know, you can't, um, and we get this, we get this in our, our training, we have to go to, you know, these yearly training sessions on how to be a good citizen of Yale University. And, and you know, there are certain things that you can't do and you can't say, you know, like, uh, if, if you're talking to somebody you don't know, you shouldn't talk to them about golf. Because, you know, golf is a, is a class issue. Oh. You, know, you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to play golf. Wow. And, you know, it's offensive. Oh, I know another thing that um, Brandeis did away with, and I, and I think it's so funny. I started laughing out loud. You cannot use the term trigger warning, right, which was invented by within within this Left, groupthink leftist. that we call, yeah, trigger warnings. You can't use it. Guess why? Because uh, of guns. Of course. i got to learn how to think like a leftist if I'm going to survive. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, it's... It's illegal to, to speak of trigger warnings at Brandeis now. Wow. So uh, there you go. You know, same way, everything, your thought, your, you can't name your child Claude. Right. Right? You can't. Why? Why not? Because it's offensive, right? You, you might offend someone. And um, there was a school in New Jersey last week decided to call all holidays simply day off so that no one would be offended so there's no thanksgiving there's no christmas there's no valentine's day no president's day nothing everything is just day off because you might offend someone and then there was a um some some musician some singer who is in her 40s or 50s and she's won five emmys i can't remember her name uh who is now insisting that the United States needs to get rid of its flag because the flag is divisive. You know, it's this kind of like, my God, what are you going what, what are you going to be left with? Well, that's that's why people who didn't like Puritans didn't like them. Right. <laughs> it's because you know you're imposing groupthink on me, and you're you're telling me what to do and how to live my life, and that is just not at all, as you say, up 
uh, and they call themselves progressives, which I think is ironic because it's regressive, as you put it, you know, it's sort of a more infantile and, and less uh, accepting and less tolerant society that you are creating. It's a completely intolerant society. But as we have seen repeatedly in history, you know, and back to this Jung principle that you, your listener uh, brought up, people are constantly reinventing the wheel and coming back to this model of intolerance. All this intolerance uh, eventually, in most cases, has happened during the French Revolution, for instance, yeah. has happened during the Russian Revolution and, and in China, uh, leads to a complete fragmentation uh, and, and, in many cases, chaos. Because eventually it's a struggle, it's a Darwinian struggle for control. Who's the fittest? Who's the strongest? Which kind of intolerance are we going to impose on people? Right. <laughs> so as a historian, you know, history repeats itself. Or as Mark Twain says, that if it doesn't repeat itself, it often rhymes with itself. Um, yeah. What can we expect and how should we act? Well, I think uh, here in the United States, we still have a chance to, to react we still have a chance to name our children Claude if we want to, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, pushing back is, is, is what people who don't like this kind of intolerance need to do is to push back, as many parents are doing in, in school districts all over the United States now, right. uh, which is why I'm so kind of ticked off today that it's going to be very difficult for me to attend this meeting. Right. But I would love to go there and, and, and speak my mind. Well, uh, if it's any encouragement, I, I keep seeing videos of minorities that oppose this. You know, and, and it's this critical race theory is supposed to be for them, which I think is great that they have their own brain and won't sit down and shut up. As someone who is considered a person of color simply because of the place where I was born, because mm -hmm. I was born in Cuba. Sure. So everybody assumes that I must be either uh, dark-skinned or African or native or something, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. My grandparents were all European, mm -hmm. but I'm considered a person of color, right? I'm considered an underrepresented minority. I find this all so offensive, so absolutely offensive, that it's like, well, what are you telling me? Are you telling me and every uh, black person or Asian person or anybody who's not, quote, unquote, white, you're telling us that we're all victims and that we're oppressed and that there's nothing we can do about it except to make white people feel guilty. It, it's a horrible uh, reverse racism. You know, I, I had, uh, I've had many experiences with discrimination and I think just, just because of my first name, mm -hmm. my last name confuses people because they can't peg it right <laughs> so i've had a lot of experiences with discrimination but my experience in the united states has been that you're judged by what you do and how well you do it period and that's the beautiful freedom that um we we could easily lose uh and i always like to cite this example I was hoping I could do it at my town meeting today. And this is 1964, okay? I'm 13 years old. I've been in the United States for two years. Bane of my existence as a teenager was that when people found out I was born in Cuba, they expected me to be very good at baseball, and they expected me to be a good dancer. Right. So gym class, seventh grade, softball game. The class gets divided into two teams, and uh, they're picking. Each team is picking its uh, its members. I get picked first by some team, so I'm I'm first up at bat too, and I strike out, as I always do. <laughs> it's terrible, terrible at baseball. So I struck out, and this one kid comes up to me, and spits in my face, and says, "You effing spick! Why don't you go back where you came from?" The rest of the class jumped on this guy right and there was no physical i mean nobody threw a punch but i still remember seeing this mob gathering around this guy 
right? And like taking him off to the side and calling him names. <laughs> and then I remember someone saying to me, don't listen to, to, uh, to him. He's an a-hole. <laughs> and so is his father. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to spawn each other, I think. I think. Yeah, his father was a, a, a policeman in this town, Bloomington, Illinois, mm-hmm. who apparently was not very well liked uh-huh. as a policeman. Anyway, um, that's been my experience of the United States, yeah. is that, uh, yeah, they're, they're stupid people who, who discriminate against others. But, you know, you really have to pity them there because it's out of ignorance and perhaps the way they've been brought up more than anything else. So I'm all, I'm all in favor of you know, teaching children not to be racist. But you don't do that by, by turning one race into evil people right in the same way going back to reformation right um this is a sad thing about the way the reformation came about is that it was all about polarization about polarizing and it's unfortunate but that's the way it it came about uh, it took a long time for tolerance to become the norm and actually the way that tolerance became the norm is that it became the norm in places where there was no majority, right? So especially in, in the Netherlands, where you had, uh, you know, Catholics and various sorts of Protestants. In England, where you had various sorts of Protestants. That's where it became normative. And it, it became normative basically because people realized, you know, we need to do business here. Business as usual needs to continue. We can't survive as a society if we're constantly uh, polarized and, and calling each other names or you know at each other's throats. And that's that's the beauty of freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Dr. Ayer promises to come back to the woodpile here in a few weeks to continue our exploration of the Reformation. In the meantime, if you crave some more digging into some deep theological issues, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 210, with Dr. Brenton Dickieson, who talks about his doctorate work on C.S. Lewis, specifically the meaning and themes behind Brother Jack's book, The Great Divorce. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.